Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, which we're bringing you a day early because of the bank holiday, we discuss Boris Johnson's more precarious position. And you ask us, how many ounces in a pound? So things look a little bit more wobbly for Boris Johnson than when we last spoke on the podcast about his position. Uh, Christopher Guite this morning, the Prime Minister's Standards Advisor, has said that he failed to publicly explain why his fine for breaking COVID rules wasn't a breach of the ministerial code, which does say that they have to comply with the law. And a number of other Conservative MPs have come out suggesting that he should resign. I think it's about 30 who have said that publicly we only know of 12 publicly so far have put their letters in. Is that right? Or have the numbers been creeping up since uh, since I wrote those notes? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. I think <laughs> because there's different numbers. I mean, I've got the one I've got here says 30 Tory rebels calling for the PM to go at the moment. So I think... We're at that strange sort of time where we've got all these oblique criticisms of the government coming through constituency letters. Um, and then, I mean, as we spoke about last week, you're not getting that really public speeches in the House of Commons. So it, lots of journalists at the moment are going through mm. all those letters, all those media comments and trying to find out whether those MPs are actually handing in their letters or they're just trying to make sure their constituents don't hate them for party going. Right, because there's been some higher profile interventions, haven't there, like Andrea Leadsom and uh, the former Attorney General as well? Yeah, and both of those are interesting because what you're seeing is that you've got criticism coming from from all sides. Uh, there were a lot of people, a lot of uh, Tory MPs who had quite senior roles in either David Cameron's government or Theresa May's. Jeremy Wright, former Attorney General, pointing out that the damage that Boris Johnson has done isn't just to his own reputation, it's also to the institutions of government. And if there were to be another crisis, a pandemic or a security threat or terrorism or anything like that, he worries that the, the government's response in obfuscating and kind of trying to weasel its way out of, of, of this would make it harder for this government or for a future government to get the public on side and to, mm -hmm. to listen and to obey more rules, which I thought was a, a really interesting point. Andrea Leadsom is interesting because she was a poster girl for 
Brexit uh, and came very close to being Prime Minister at one point in a parallel universe where we're all still being governed by Andrea Leadsom. You've also got the ERG, Brexity, COVID sceptic people like Steve Baker and, and Mark Harper, who you would expect. You've got Andrew Bridgen, who I think has put in four letters of no confidence in various <laughs> PMs over his career, something of a, a theme for him. Um, and then you've got lots of Conservative MPs who are uh, a bit worried about losing their seats to the Lib Dem sort of blue wall, uh, Tory Hartland's kind of types. So it really is a broad range. And what you're not seeing is uh, a very smoothly oiled machine getting behind one candidate and going, right, guys, we're going to act now to put our guy or our woman, but it'll probably be our guy in into Downing Street. It's more a kind of dissatisfaction with all wings of the party. And that's why they're sort of trickling in. Yeah. And I think because it's such a broad church of rebels, it's really hard for the government and for Downing Street to try and clamp down on it because they can't, for instance, say, OK, we'll announce this one thing and that will placate their worries. But then also, as you said, Rachel, it's, it means that you can't actually have a very organised rebellion because it's coming from all different parts of the party. So that sort of means we don't know when the vote of no confidence will happen. It does seem like it is going to happen at some point now, whether it's going to be next week or maybe it'll have to be after the by-elections. So there is that sort of unpredictability about the whole thing in part because it is coming from... I mean, if you've got a, the, the previous best example of when this happened, obviously, was with Theresa May. And the difference there was that there was so organised by the ERG, people like Mark Harper, as you said, that it was quite clear what they wanted. They wanted to for Theresa May to change her Brexit deal. Whereas now it's an individual personal judgment of MPs. They have to make a, a judgment about the PM's conduct and they have to try and reconcile that with their own integrity. So that's sort of uh, one of the unpredictable factors at the moment. That's really interesting because I suppose it is a bit of a fool's errand to try and guess when that threshold will, will be reached. But what is interesting is that, you know, what are the chances of him actually winning a vote of no confidence? And what does it mean if he wins? What does it mean if he loses? Because obviously when Theresa May had her first vote of no confidence against her. She did win it, but she was out six months later. And it can be really crippling to a prime minister's authority to know how many people don't want them to be leader of the party anymore. Yeah, Theresa May is the best example because people say, OK, if Johnson wins the vote, he's safe for a year. He's not, because even though the rules say you can't have another vote of no confidence, if the Tory party, if a majority of MPs in the Tory party want him to go, they will make it happen. That's what one senior Tory MP said to me this week. It doesn't matter about the rules. If we really have to, you know, <laughs> the rules will change. Our will will prevail. Yes. Um, and that's that's worrying for Johnson. I mean, May was out about six months after she won the confidence vote. So we're already in the sort of dangerous, real perilous stage for Johnson. So I think that's something that he's going to be worried about. Mm. And what's actually happened? Sort of, Why has the mood changed? Has it been that MPs have gone back to their constituencies and sort of realised the ire among the general public? I know that Geoffrey Clifton-Brown, who is on the 1922 committee, he was sort of saying, actually, the mood's changed in the public rather than just in the party. So is it that they're being fed back from what they're hearing from their constituents and realising that they just can't defend this anymore? I think that's definitely part of it. You've got to remember that uh, this has been going on for, uh, well 
five months, six months, seven months, depending on where you started from. But it's been going on for a long time. And up until now, Conservative MPs have had the excuse or the line of just wait for the Sue Gray report or just wait for the Met investigation. And that's a very helpful line for just shutting the conversations down. We've had both of those things and they don't have uh, a line now. They've also multiple times since the, the Owen Patterson scandal back in October, multiple times they have been asked to defend the government, vote with the government, if they're in any way a ministerial position, go on TV and, and defend the government only for the government to U-turn or for it to turn out that the thing that they were defending isn't happening anymore. And they just look very silly and, and, and have been, I think, embarrassed by this government multiple times. So I think some of them are also just getting fed up. I mean, a great example of this is that a couple of weeks ago, the government whipped them all to vote against a windfall tax to target the, the cost of living crisis. And they dutifully did that. They must have known that the government was going to U-turn and implement a, a windfall tax, even if they ended up calling it something different. And now they all look completely embarrassed. I mean, what was what was the point of making them do that? So I think discipline has been fraying for at least six months now and going back to their constituencies and realising that they don't have a good line anymore to feed to their constituents about why they're acting in this way, that's going to have had an impact too. I also, just casting my mind back to what we discussed last week and Harry Lambert's point about why are they not on the floor making these <laughs> rousing speeches? Why aren't they being sort of David Davis and saying, do you want to do your impression again, Freddie? In the name of God, go. Exactly. And that would obviously have been very powerful. But instead, you've had this drip, drip, drip every day. It's been, oh, I wonder how many are going to speak out today. And that's actually been powerful in a different way because it means that it's still on the front pages. The government just can't shut this down. Yeah. And I suppose it really underlines the point, which is the reason why, I mean, aside from all the morality, which, you know, is a big aside, the reason why you don't want a government sort of obfuscating and being dishonest and breaking its own laws is because it's a symptom of a government that's dysfunctional. And it, it underlines what you were just saying, Rachel, about the fact that they're always marching their MPs up up the hill to only to march them down again. They did it in the Owen Paterson case. They've had a number of U-turns that have really riled Tories up on, on different sides of the party. And they can't seem to stop themselves doing that, which, which sort of speaks to a wider dysfunction between Downing Street and its, you know, backbenchers. I know there's supposed to have been this over hall of the structure of how number 10 and the cabinet office and sort of the prime minister's office work since the the Sue Gray report. But clearly that there are problems there in terms of communication and organisation. It really does sort of reveal that this government is just firefighting day to day rather than has any sort of organisational strategy. That's why the problem with corrupt governments or dishonest governments is that they're just not very good at governing. Yeah. And it also means that we're going to see similar things in the future because the cause isn't going to change. Johnson is not going to change. So you're going to get more scandals, uh, more U-turns in the future. And I think that's one of the things that Tory MPs are coming to realise now. And with by-elections and uh, local elections and everything we've had and more to come in the future, that becomes a more and more pressing issue. Johnson is not going to change. You can try and change uh, the Downing Street structure around him and yeah sure that might make a difference but his personality and the enormous power that the prime minister has in our system at the moment means that it makes a massive difference 
that who, who's in power and the fact that he's not going to change means that, <laughs> that the problems aren't going to go away. Yeah, absolutely. And there was so much outrage about the changes that were made to the ministerial code to try and sort of let ministers off the hook who, who break rules. But of course, the prime minister is the ultimate arbiter of the ministerial code. That's how our system works. And we've talked about that a lot on the um, Armando Iannucci Westminster Reimagined podcast about how much power is centralised around the prime minister. So if the prime minister's personality is, is of a particular type, then that is going to permeate through the system. And, and like Freddie says, it's not really going to change. It's interesting because we don't have a presidential system here. We have a, a parliamentary system. And there does seem to be an attitude in Downing Street that the people of the United Kingdom voted for Boris Johnson personally to lead them. And therefore, the only way he can be forced out is in a, a general election. Anything else is sort of quote unquote undemocratic. And actually, I'm sure Boris Johnson was instrumental in winning the election in 2019. I'm, I'm not going to say that he had no part to play in that at all. But the, the way it works is people elect their local MP and then the MPs in the largest party choose a leader. And Boris Johnson doesn't have the personal mandate that I think he is acting like he does. And a lot of the changes to the ministerial code are about centralising power and giving more power to the office of the prime minister. And the idea that nobody can hold the prime minister to account at all, apart from voters every four to five years, that just isn't constitutionally how it works. There are all kinds of ways that you can get rid of a, of a prime minister or that MPs can get rid of a prime minister. One of the things that I think we, we have learned from all of this is that the ministerial code, it's uh, to quote Pirates of the Caribbean, it's, it's more like guidelines anyway. Actually, how, how weak it is, a lot of the way our, our parliament works is to do with protocol and precedent and you know you would convention. expect convention you would expect the minister to resign well what are you going to do if he doesn't nothing and that's what we've learned and one of the most astounding things for, for me from Lord Guite's intervention is where he said you know he, he he would have formally asked the Prime Minister to look into this and, and, and talk about how the fixed penalty notice referred to the, the ministerial code but he didn't do that because he knew the Prime Minister would say no and then his position would be weakened and it would basically make a mockery of the ministerial code overall and you're like hang on then what is the point of you and what is the point of, of this thing and I think we're realising how weak a lot of our institutions are when you have someone in power who just doesn't play by the rules and it turns out that they weren't rules anyway they were they were guidelines yeah it turns out the good chaps theory of government falls down when there are bad chaps in charge who could possibly have predicted that <laughs> <laughs> but just on that i think because our constitution is so flexible it does provide the leeway to update those sort of rules and try mm. and bring in different ways of doing things so you know the ministerial code isn't actually that old and we can introduce new uh, ways of doing things. I I agree. I'm trying to provide the other side of this argument, but I'm yeah. struggling slightly because yes, uh, it doesn't work as well when we do have someone like Boris Johnson in Downing Street providing or or sort of walking over all over the over the rules. So uh, yes, I think it is tricky, but I would say this will be used in the future. I think as a case in point for new reforms that will come through. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests 
for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question today is from a cheeky listener who asks, how many ounces in a pound? Do any of you know I'm going to go straight for 16, just because I think this is right. I'm not entirely sure, but because I, I, there was one minister last week who got it wrong. Rachel, am I right? You must have looked it up before we started. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I was born in 1990, so I don't know the answer to this one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... I think that's probably about right. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff on social media with the reports that we're bringing back imperial measurements of people kind of trying to work out what you use for various things. The height of people, I think, we often do in, in feet and yeah. inches. Yes. That's fine. Speed, we do in miles sometimes, unless you're on Strava and then you do it in kilometres. Everything else, you're on the metric system. One Tory journalist pointed out that we weigh babies in, in pounds and that oh, yeah. who's ever heard of a, a four kilogram baby? Uh, and then a, a nurse responded and said, no, actually, we, we weigh them in kilograms because, surprise, surprise, all medication is measured in the metric system. And so if you want to work out how much of a very powerful medication you should give to a baby, you need to know exactly what weight that baby is in, in the metric system. I don't think there was a there was a response to that. Is there anything else that we use imperial things for? Horses. You measure horses in hands, don't you? Is that imperial? Is that imperial, yeah. Uh, well, it's not metric. Not metric. <laughs> it's old. It's just body. <laughs> the body system. The reason why we're talking about this is because this was an announcement over the weekend from Downing Street that they will launch a consultation into bringing back imperial measurements. Now, obviously, this says a lot more about the government that we're under than actually, you know, the way that we measure things. Um, it was part of a series of patriotic announcements scheduled to be briefed to the Daily Telegraph ahead of the Jubilee. And it does beg the question of how this government with a, you know, 80 odd, I think it's a bit lower now, seat majority, why it's failing so much to pass significant legislation and to change the nature of the country, which presumably is the idea of having a big yeah, majority. Yeah, I, I think it's clearly not that significant. It might be interesting and it, and it it makes for good chat, but the imperial system isn't that important a change. It's the same with the reintroduction of putting the etchings of crowns on pint glasses, I think. That's that's fine. It's it's hard to have a strong opinion on yeah. that, but it's not really the fundamental legislative change that the government's promised with Brexit. I think it is obviously part of a distraction from Partygate at the moment, uh, which is successful in one part. I mean, look at us now talking about it, but um, I think also we have to remember that massive legislation will be passed with the windfall tax and the cost of living package. Uh, last week, that was a £15 billion package that... I think would give £400 
to every single household, which is just a huge amount of government intervention. So, and I don't think that got enough traction. The government seemed to hastily announce it as soon as the Sue Gray report was released. But first of all, it didn't get party gate off the agenda, as we spoke about before. You had the trickle of MPs sending in letters, but then also it didn't get the proper scrutiny or recognition that it should have, or at least discussion about, because it was lost in the agenda. Yes. And actually, that big package of measures, we haven't spoken about that on the podcast yet, but it was, you know, a huge intervention and actually welcomed by a lot of charities and other groups and, you know, opposition politicians even who have been worried about the position of um, the people in society who have the least being hit the hardest by the cost of living crisis. So it was very significant. But perhaps insignificant in terms of Tory policy ideas, because it was nicked from the Labour Party, really, although they're doing it differently. And it has been controversial among Conservative figures, because this idea of a big state, big spending chancellor is not really what they wanted from Rishi Sunak. They thought he was doing that as a one-off during the pandemic, but it turns out it's the only way he seems to be able to to run the Treasury. Well, it's not what Rishi Sunak wants to do either. In fact, he he resisted it quite heavily. And you wrote a good piece, Anish, last week on on how... He's only popular when he's forced to enact policies that are kind of the opposite of what his ideology says. So I, I'm, I'm not sure how much you can read into that. There's a lovely, I can't remember who it was, I think it was just someone on Twitter who'd done a sort of morphing picture of Rishi Sunak slowly morphing into Jeremy Corbyn, which I think is yeah. just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the, the last politician he wants to be associated with. It, it is a, a tremendous amount of, of money and a huge intervention, although they're still resisting doing the, the one thing that they could do to help the the very poorest most urgently, which is, again, what, what you've been pushing for, Anish, which is simply increasing universal credit because you know that recipients of universal credit are those who are struggling the most and you could just reverse the, the cut or reimpose the the uplift depending on how you want to frame it they're not doing that they're giving it to everyone this 400 pounds that means that second homeowners or third homeowners are getting it multiple times so you know that's <laughs> not a great look for the conservatives but that's what happens if you refuse to target help you end up in these weird situations where you're giving more help to the wealthiest and and yeah Rishi Sunak kind of getting it from from all sides there yeah I think Sunak has said that he's going to give his payment to charity. I think if if you're in the government and you have to give to charity to make your policy work in the way it's supposed to, that's not a very good sign. You've already lost the argument there, haven't you? And then on the package itself, it was much more progressive than what we saw in February and also what we saw with the spring statement. Um, I think the Resolution Foundation recognised that as others, as you say, Anoush. But once you take them all together... I think the Resolution Foundation did a analysis of it, and it's about £1,200 of support for all each household, which is fairly evenly distributed across the income scale. So you're not actually seeing a massive amount of redistribution. You're not seeing targeted support for those on lower incomes once you can take it into account that we've already had two big announcements before now. Yes, that is interesting, actually, the, the the fact that they have always missed out that one lever that they could have easily pulled, which is to put universal credit up at the rate of inflation, which, you know, he had the opportunity to do in his spring statement and ducked it. And I mean, that's sort of like that allergy towards universal credit in the Treasury goes back to the George Osborne v. Mm. Ian Duncan Smith days. So I suppose he is <laughs> he is conserving some traditional Treasury Tory values there by, by avoiding doing that. But really, you know, this, this package of measures does 
I think, create an identity crisis for the Conservative Party because the state is growing under this party. I mean, they keep briefing things about cutting civil servants and uh, the fast stream and things like that. But how on earth do they intend to do that if they are actually increasing the size of the state and also the the role of it? Because we know that Boris Johnson, you know, he's a fan of infrastructure projects. He's not afraid of spending. And all he really wants to do is please people, particularly the people who are perceived to be his new voters. Mm. Although there has been some interesting research out this week Week about whether or not the red wall theory is a bit of a red herring because actually a lot of the people who voted for Boris Johnson in those seats are just retirees who own their own homes like everywhere else that votes Tory <laughs> um, <laughs> which which also reveals why they might be sort of briefing these kind of policies like bringing back imperial measurements and also railing against working from home which is apparently only popular among pensioners who sort of feel like they worked in the office or at their workplace all their life and why mm. these lazy people shouldn't be doing it too. Well we're all in the studio we should say. So yes, we are, we, yes, we, we are, are not recording We're this not from woking home. from home. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the identity crisis point is, is spot on and it, you've got on the one hand here Rishi Sunak handing out all the free money which is a very unconservative policy and on the other hand bring back imperial measurements briefing that they're going to bring back grammar schools uh, oh, yes. awful yeah, that one. Br- awful briefing earlier this week that the the first flight of asylum seekers to Rwanda has been scheduled for the 14th of June with I think it's 15 Syrian refugees who obviously that's there's going to be a lot of legal challenges to that but that is kind of conservative red meat as well we've had headlines about a bonfire of EU regulations which is a headline that I think I've seen about three hundred times since the EU referendum and it's always what the government goes to whenever it's feeling sort of backed into a corner and it wants to say, look, we are the party that you elected, even though we're doing all these unconservative things like splashing money everywhere. So they're all things that are designed to sound a certain way but it's it's sort of a, a desperate panicking how, how do we how do we govern when we don't have an ideological direction and for all the the, the, the Tory supporters who have said actually bringing back imperial measurements is good for all kinds of reasons uh, or basically you should let shops decide I don't think if you'd asked any of them a few months ago or even when Boris Johnson won the election you know you've got your conservative prime minister you've got your conservative majority what do you want him to do with that do you want want kind of mass planning reform? Do you want trade deals with the rest of the world? Do you want infrastructure projects? Do you want tax cutting? Like, what do you want? I don't think any of them would have said, you know what, I really want to bring back pounds and ounces. So even the people who it's pleasing, I think know deep down that it's not really going to have any kind of impact. Yeah, it's sort of like McDonald's for Tory backbenchers, isn't it? It's kind of like satisfying in the moment to read the headline and to see the sort of lefty outrage, but it doesn't usually actually happen. And also it's not meaty policy. It's not sort of state changing policy like you outlined. How many pints of salt are there in McDonald's burger? <laughs> can, can, you me- can you measure it in How ounces? many hands is a Big Mac? <laughs> but yeah, I, I also want to make the same point that I made in the top of the podcast, which is it's another sign of dysfunction. So yes, they're backed into a corner politically, which is why they're sort of playing the hits in terms of grammar schools and, and various things like that. But also it just it shows how dysfunctional it is. I was speaking to someone who has worked in various private offices, a civil servant, 
of high profile ministers and they were saying they've never known it to be this leaky. So like every time they brief one of these policies or announce like the Rwanda deal, you have a lot of civil servants sort of making it known that they, they think that it's not value for money and that it's not moral and that there's a lot of sort of rancor in the department over it. And actually, apparently, you know, you didn't often get those kind of moments as much in the previous administration. Another example is the Afghanistan evacuation as well. There was a lot of leaking over that. And of course, civil servants have have felt really betrayed over the the party fines as well. You know, those who were working in and around Downing Street and uh, in the cabinet office have felt kind of like they're being the fool guys for for what their more senior leaders, both in the civil service and in government, were were sort of allowing them to do. And that's causing quite a few leaks as well. And so that's another example of how this this government is sort of functioning and communicating badly. Yeah, I think as well, when we are talking about the government in crisis, you have to look, as you said, at the contradiction between the policies. On the one hand, Sunak wants to reduce taxes, reduce debt before the next election. But then we've just had this massive 15 a billion pound stimulus or oh, not stimulus well, I guess it will stimulate in one part but this massive fiscal intervention and I think the one of the key things that is concerning uh, lots of people who are in the Tory party and in that world at the moment is the fact that it, it risks stimulating more inflation and I think we have to remember that that is the biggest threat to cost of living standards at the moment we are trying to solve the inflation crisis it's not good enough just to spend more money and to do that you have to think about it in more macroeconomic terms and that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Bank of England. They have to think about how they're going to address uh, inflation now. So what you may see is an increase in the interest rate which most people are predicting at the moment and okay then you're finally getting a bit of a fiscal intervention which will help cushion some of that blow but this is building pressure on inflation as well and I think that's something we have to bear in mind. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Haywood. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.